NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steve Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today, we're going to take another step towards explaining America with one of the country's foremost and most prolific profilers, the documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, who's just released a new book, a photographic history of the country titled Our America. Ken Burns, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. I'm happy to be with you. I'm looking forward to a great conversation and a word to our audience. Before we begin, you can tweet questions to Ken at, at @postlive. That's the Twitter handle at @postlive, and we'll try to get a few of them out and ask Ken them. So, Ken, my first question is about this new book you've put out, and it very much overlaps with our own attempts to explain America here in this series. You talk about who we are as Americans, and I wonder how working on this project helps you to answer that that question. Well, it's so interesting, Francis, because this is so different than anything I've done before. I'm usually making films in which I'm explaining. Um, all my roots, though, are in still photography. My father, though, an anthropologist, had a hobby of a still photography, and my earliest memory is of being in a darkroom uh, with him. And then I went to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, and my great mentor, Jerome Liebling, was not just interested in film, but in still photography. So it's the DNA of what I do in my films. And so this has been an idea incubating for 15 years where I would suddenly revert and uh, permit those individual photographs without any kind of manipulation, no panning, no zooming, no Ken Burns effect, no explanation, just one photograph per page, like an Aperture magazine monograph with a minimal caption, Gettysburg 1863, and talking to the picture on the recto if it's the verso and vice versa, and just proceed from the first photograph taken in America in 1839, of course, because it's America, it's a self-portrait of the photographer, all the way more or less to the present and kind of um, touch every state in the union. And basically most of the projects that we've tried to cover over the last nearly 50 years and to and to permit another kind of conversation about this animating question in all of my work, who are we to obtain? And so I think what you begin to see is a really complicated portrait that's that's dark as well as light. It's joyous as well as sorrowful. It has um, really positive things, great natural beauty, fun. Uh, and at the same time, it's filled with all of the things that are often the conflicts that have defined and animated us. We're a people born on the idea of universal freedom, but the man who articulated that owned hundreds of human beings. And so almost all American discussions of freedom are, are born on a tension between collective freedom, what I want, I mean, what 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 we need, and, and personal freedom, what I want. And then, of course, there's always the question of race and native peoples and immigrants that are pushing at the corners of the official kind of authorized version of who we are. And the book was an attempt to try to um, 
break down some silos and, and place it all together. Of course, it's not our America. It's my America. And it, it's kind of presumptuous to do that. But I think in a period of division, if we can realize, you know, I've been making films about the U.S. for 50 years, but I've also been making films about us. And what I've understood finally, maybe it took me too many decades to get it, is there's only us and no them. And whenever anyone tells you of them, you need to run away. So this is an attempt to show all of us with no them present. So, you know, I'm an immigrant. I wasn't born an American. I, I took a citizenship test and became an American. And I think having that perspective makes you think very hard about what it means to become an American. And I'd love to have your thoughts. What would you have said to the former me? What do you say to immigrants today about it? what, what it means to be an American? Well, I think there's an ex a, 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 an essential privilege there. This was the first time in human history that people decided that you could um, govern yourself and that great energies, uh, higher emotions, the founders called it, uh, would be released. That's what the pursuit of happiness is. It's not looking for material things, it's lifelong learning. And Jefferson himself, for all his flaws and contradictions, understands that this requires a kind of effort and vigilance. A little bit down from the famous sentence and before the list of complaints about King George, he, he says that human beings are disposed to suffer tyrannies while those evils are sufferable, meaning that a democracy is going to take a kind of a participatory effort. It's going to take work. I mean, the cliche is vigilance. And so, you know, I made a, one of my films I made in the mid 80s on the Statue of Liberty. We ended up basically only talking to immigrants or children of immigrants. There was no, you know, you'd ask people what liberty was and they'd kind of go, uh, I don't know, freedom, you know, like that. And yet, if you talk to Jerzy Kaczynski or you talk to Mar Mario Cuomo, whose parents uh, came from Italy, if you talk to, to uh, other people, you got a much richer and fuller sense of of this potentiality of the United States and how much those of us who are used to it take it for granted. And that's where at times like this, a major crisis in our history where the obvious things that survived the three previous great crises, civil war, depression, and um, uh, the second world war, that is to say free and fair elections, the peaceful transfer of power, the independence of the judiciary are all uh, up for grabs and in question and seemed eroded. And our most recent film called The U.S. and the Holocaust chronicles the way in which the ideas, uh, the, the, the pernicious ideas of fascism and, and anti-Semitism and nativism and xenophobia and racism and uh, anti-indigenous people attitudes uh, travels uh, without a passport, just as we Americans are loath to help those people who are desperate for a passport to get here when they most needed it. And one of our great failings is not to have been able to provide sanctuary, though we provided more, we let in more refugees than any other sovereign nation, we could have easily taken in five Five times that many and still obeyed the pernicious Johnson Reed Immigration Act. And I would believe you could do 10 times. And then you're talking about 2 million people. And then you're talking about a significant dent in that opaque number that no one really understands called the 6 million. So it's it's a complicated story. And, you know, Hitler uh, sent jurists to study our Jim Crow laws to fashion the anti-Jewish discriminatory laws that were passed in Nuremberg. You know, he admired the fact that we had taken care of, eliminated our Native American population and 
herded the rest into camps, you know, what we call reservations. He was happy with our restrictive immigration law that seemed to favor Northern European, white, Protestant, Nordic, he would say Aryan nation, as opposed to those countries that had a large Catholic and Jewish population. So, you know, we have a kind of reckoning we have to do there. And that's the kind of reckoning that I think immigrants to the United States have to make a decision about whether to buy in to a country that's there just because we subscribe to an idea, a catechism. Yeah, and, and another thing I, I think is very key that comes with citizenship are, are two roles in civil society, right? You can you can vote and you can do jury duty only when you've taken citizenship. Before that, the US kind of offers you everything. But back to those ideals and institutions, you've, you, they're very hard to represent photographically, right? And your book is all about people. It's, a, it's, it's personality driven. So how do you try to capture those key ideals and institutions that really represent America in a, in a photographic book like this? Well, they're there. Uh, certainly there's lots of people. And, you know, someone once told me, I, I think it was Bill Moyers that said every every landscape is still a, a, a picture of a human face, you know, because it's the person talking to another person. So there's the beautiful natural beauty of this country is throughout this book, uh, our factories, our, our, our capital building at various stages, uh, all other institutions, Wall Street is in there. So, it, you know, the kind of physicalness of the country and its institutions are there. And when you see hundreds of Klansmen in full regalia with an American flag on the steps of the United States Capitol in 1925, you know you've got to think about that institution in a, in a different way and ask yourself questions that the photograph, without any captions or explanation, is posing to you. I have to say that's, that photograph struck me very, very dramatically with the flag all the way down the steps of the Capitol. It's, the book is also, Ken, such a celebration of multiculturalism and we're in a, a moment of polarization and divides. Do you think along the way that the, the years that you've documented in this book, we have lost a celebration of the commonalities of being an American, not necessarily the common culture, that might not be the right word, but the common values, the common aspirations, the common goals? I, I'm not sure if they're lost, just as, you know, you think that anti-Semitism, which was pre prevalent in the 20s and 30s and helped to keep us from welcoming immigrants had sort of disappeared. It resurfaces now. There's more anti-Semitic uh, incidents going on. The ADL explains to us than, you know, for decades. And so, you know, these things come and go. And I think, therefore, a sense of cohesion is either gained or lost in the process of this. It's all different calibrations. And I think what the perspective of history is it offers a little bit of um, optimism that you go through these periods, you get through the other side. There's just something so extraordinarily unprecedented about the series of events that we've been going through concentrated in the last uh, three or four years that have made it for those of us who are amateur historians and the real scholarly historians to sort of give pause and understand the, the, the fraught nature of this moment. And so you hope that, as Lincoln would say, the better angels of our nature reemerged. And he, at the beginning of that sentence, talks about the mystic chords of memory, Francis, and that's C-H-O-R-D-S, not C-O-R-D-S, right. chords of rope that force you together, but chords in harmony. And it's that harmony that you're anticipating. It's that harmony that we feel a lack of at any given time. And it's that harmony that I wanted to at least remind in the series of images that, you know, are minimal captions. And then in the back, there's thumbnails of every photograph and a much more extensive prose 
prose description, but we first wanted to let the photograph wash over you and maybe ask as many questions before you suddenly ran to the back to find out the, you know, the rational explanation. A good work of art, you know, is always in some ways uh, one plus one equaling three. And that improbable calculus is, despite the fact that no bridge can stand if it isn't two, if the answer to that isn't two, um, our lives are animated by that. Our faith, our art, our work, even our rationalism depends on something that where the whole is greater than the some of the parts. And I think in the set of these photographs, each individual one speaks a lot. You know, we say the cliche is that a picture is worth a thousand words. And I say in the introduction that maybe with the gazillion of inattentive photographs taken today that that's been devalued. Maybe it's 500, maybe it's 250. But the attempt <laughs> of the book was to return full value, all thousand words to that, to that, uh, to the photograph. So the book takes us from 1839 to 2019, and you've mentioned already, but I want to say it again, it takes us from you know, glory to grimness, from awe to horror um, throughout. But you have created a balance, and I wonder how that balance between those contrasting emotions has changed since 2019 when you stopped taking the books, stopped taking the photographs, and how your thinking has evolved in the last few years and as we head towards midterms now. Well, you know, be, being in the history business, you don't want to get up to the right to the present. You know, you want to, you begin to slow down. For me, it begins to slow down in the early 70s. And at that point, there's very few photographs and it's impressionistic. And that's the way it has to be 25, 30 years, 40 years out from an event. You want to just slow down. So, yeah, this film has been, I've been working on for years and years and years. In fact, the 29 photograph, the last photograph in the book, we, we were working on this up until, you know, early uh, last year. There was nothing in recent events that changed what we were doing. It just sort of added, Francis, a kind of urgency to what we were doing because some of the divisions, some of the fissures that are on display from the very beginning, the second or third shot is just a hand of a of a man. And and when you see it, it's got reverse, if you look closely, it's got a reverse two S's in it. It has to do with the, how the negative is configured. And that he was branded because he'd helped um, some slaves escape from Florida to the West Indies. And he was branded SS, a slave stealer. So we're, you know, this has been with us from the very beginning, the kinds of divisions, um, artificial divisions based on this notion that I said, that it's so much easy to create, it's, it's so easy to create a them and say, there's the source of your grievance. Here are your grievances and guess who's doing it? It's them when it's all us, you know, and it's only us. And and that's, that's I think, one of the big um, takeaways for me in compiling the book. So whatever is going on at this moment, this is at least one chronicle of a kind of arc of American history that tries to embrace and put its arm around all of our manifestations, our physical reality, but all of the diversity of us. We have always been a diverse uh, culture. And, and no matter what xenophobic uh, trend might be overtaking the present moment, you cannot take away from the fact that we are all immigrants, except those native peoples who populate many pages of this book, who themselves came 20, 22,000 years ago from East Asia. The, the genetic makeup of the Native American population will, will genetically resemble an East Asian uh, DNA. So, um, you know, we're all immigrants.
rural immigrants. But you mentioned the word freedom several times, and there is in the book this tension between the sort of heroic narrative of freedom and the freedom fighters. We see freedom fighters all the way through, the Blacks, the Native Americans, the, the other people who had to fight for their own rights. Talk a little bit more about that tension between those two ideas of freedom. And of course, there are well, other ideas like collective freedom and individual freedom. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's what I said at the beginning, you know, the, yeah. the main contention is about that what I want versus what we need. Um, but of course, each new group that's coming in is going to have to, in some ways, ask somebody on this crowded pew to move over a little bit, you know, to shove down so that they can fit in. And that has been a source of tension. So the Irish, you know, were rejected. The Germans in the 18th century, I, I, my last film before this one was on Benjamin Franklin. He was complaining, Hitler would be rolling in his grave, about the swarthy Germans uh, that were interrupting the lovely white and red. He was already fetishizing and romanticizing Native Americans, even as we were dispossessing them of their land, him included, you know, looking to make a mint on land deals in 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 the Ohio Valley. And when, one of the things that radicalized him is that Britain cut off speculation on the other side of the Appalachian. So there's always these tensions and each group. And then the, once you're assimilated a generation or two, you find yourself, you know, unhappy that the new group is coming in. In fact, American Jews who'd been around in the United States since the 17th and 18th century and, and in the 19th century were aghast at these new, um, uh, much poorer uh, Jews that were coming in from Central and Eastern Europe and, and said, they gnaw the bones of old centuries. We are really Americans. And you find even in the, the polls during the 1930s that people who wanted to limit immigration, 25% of American Jews wanted to. So this is always a tension with us, uh, no matter what it is. The new us has a hard time coming in until passage of time, and then there's somebody else uh, that you're now worried about. I want to ask you more about race, and I want to read to you a sentence that you write in the introduction to your, to your new book. Um, you say, the black experience in the United States underscores in ways particular and all-encompassing our great promise and great failing. Talk to us about those two words, the great promise and the great failing, and how they can continue now. Well, the, the, um, the scholar uh, Gerald Early, who's appeared in a few of my films, said to me when we were working on, on jazz that African-Americans have the peculiar experience of being unfree in a free land, and that allows them to improvise more than anything. So here we are, founded on a catechism. We know exactly when we were born, and we know what we agreed to, to become, you know, Philadelphia, July 4th, 1776. And we know that sentence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. You stop about a third of the way through that sentence, and you have to stop because the guy who wrote those words owned hundreds of human beings and didn't see the contradiction, didn't see the hypocrisy, and more importantly, never saw fit in his lifetime to free any of those human beings. And so I think set America, both symbolically and actually set America off with this divide that the freedom was extended to those people that they uh, thought were worthy of it. In fact, you were not. 
um, women had zero rights. You know, they were considered incompetent to serve on a jury or to testify in a court if they married with wealth to somebody else. That wealth immediately became the husband. If they left an abusive relationship, they left with the clothes on their back, not the children that they bore or the material property they brought. All of that has been an ongoing struggle. So there is the promise and there is the failing. And what's so good in the end about Jefferson's words is that they are um, aspirational and that we are, you know, as just as much as he says, we are in pursuit of happiness. That's the key word is pursuit, not happiness itself. Um, it's pursuit. And so I think we are a nation in the process of becoming. And that's an important thing that as long as that is it were continually expanding what that word all men are created equal means, then we're okay. Because it meant all white men of property free of debt. It doesn't mean that anymore. It's a lot bigger. I want to talk to you now. You raised the, the most recent film, film you've done on the Holocaust, and you actually pushed up the date of its production because you saw so many parallels between the period of the Holocaust and now. I'd love to play a little bit of the from that film so we can all look at it together, and then we'll talk a little bit about the resonance that that film has today. One of the stories we tell ourselves is that we're a land of immigrants. But in moments of crisis, it becomes very hard for us to live up to those stories. The U.S. and the Holocaust, a six-hour documentary presented over three nights, shifts the focus to make this an American story as well. One that raises troubling questions of this country's history and actions. So this film is not just about the Holocaust in Germany. It's really about America. Um, it's about America's role in many ways. Is that, did you know that you were going to do that going into doing this film? Or was that something that evolved as you learned more and more about the relationship across the Atlantic? Well, first of all, let me say that the United States bears no responsibility for the Holocaust, right. none. And in fact, we are the principal agent for the end of the Second World War. And we also let in more people, as I said, than any other mm -hmm. sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. Having said that, we didn't do enough. This was a film always designed to be about the US, kind of narrowing the focus, what we did and what we didn't do, what we should have done, what we knew, when we knew it, what we didn't know, what we should have known, all of those sorts of things, and to kind of have a reckoning in that. But it was also, Francis, literally, we realized as we were doing it, it is about the Holocaust, and we had to reconfigure it and re-see it and we represent the actual Holocaust so that we could have this kind of alternating current, if you will, of being in the United States and then going and finding out what happened. And in that strange discipline, the specifics of this particular story, the U.S. and the Holocaust, I think we were able to reimagine and represent the actual Holocaust itself, separate from whatever Americans were doing or not doing as an event that helped people uh, understand it. And so as we were getting into it, the only surprise is how suddenly we realized we were in a project that, that there was no other project that we were working on that could be as important as this one or, or more important. And, and that's what I ended up saying. I, I will not work on a more important film. I hope other films have been as important. I hope films that I'm working on now or will work on um, will be as important, but nothing will be more important than this film because it is a, an attempt to understand the story of the Holocaust through the lens of the United States. And as I said much earlier, a lot of the ideas that animate uh, the anti-Semitism in Germany are not born here, but they are circulating here and there. And it becomes possible, as I said, they're not required. Those 
horrific ideas are not required to have visas or passports. Uh, only the the struggling humanity trying to escape this uh, whirlwind um, do. And and that's the there's the rub. So you have made this point many times since making this film about the resonance that making that film has today, the ideas uh, that were prevalent then, and that I guess you see today. Can you talk to us and for viewers who haven't seen the film, describe to us why yeah, so, that pre-war period was so important for you in thinking about so today? People like to say that history repeats itself. It does not, Francis. It never has. Right. There has never been exactly the thing. Mark Twain is supposed to have said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I don't know a film that I've worked on where I haven't finished it. Whatever it is about the Brooklyn Bridge, the West, you know, baseball in which it's not rhyming in the present in some way, in which there are echoes of what's going on. And as we began this in 2015 in an entirely different world uh, than we are in now, we presume like every film and knew that it would rhyme. What we didn't realize was how much every sentence was beginning to rhyme as we worked our way through the editing. And about a year and a half ago, I said to my co-directors, Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein, we got to move this up. It was going to be comfortably next year in 23. And I said, no, we need to be part of a conversation because we're now rhyming in every um, in every sort of sentence of the script and every moment and scene of the story that we are trying to tell. And I think more importantly, the way we set the table in the first episode of the three episodes, dealing with our anti-immigrant, our xenophobic, our nativist, our racist, our anti-Semitic past, the eugenics, this fascination with the pseudoscience which would attempt to delineate a hierarchy of races when of course there's only one race, the human race. All of the things that contributed to our inability to act out the best version of ourselves with regard to those people seeking to flee Nazi horror. Uh, we couldn't just end when the pernicious Johnson-Reed Immigration Act was changed and replaced in 1965 by an act that Lyndon Johnson put through as part of the Great Society and, you know, created some more problems, but, but basically helped the pernicious quota system to go away and disappear. And so we just needed to go past that. And in the last few minutes of the film, we bring us right up to, for me, you know, right up to the present in a kind of untethered montage that realizes that the fragility of civilization and institutions are as present now as they were back then. And as the, as the writer Daniel Mendelssohn says poignantly, it doesn't mean we're going to do that. But if somebody decides that the conventions are changed, he said, and that we can kill grandmothers on Saturday and go to church on Sunday, be careful and don't kid yourself. These are not some different kind of people in those sepia tone photographs. They're people like us, the waiter at the table, at the dry cleaner, your neighbor, you know, and that was an important point to kind of make that 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 things are happening. There's a moment in the film when the great Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt says, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens, to which I added, the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. And I think in some ways, the acceleration of our production, we didn't skimp on anything, we just worked harder to get it out, allowed us to be part of a conversation this fall as we contemplate you know, wither the United States. Who are we? What do we value? 
small d democracy and small r republic as well, both things that we're thinking about hard. I want to bring you right up to date with the last question. We had President Biden yesterday talking about the danger of election deniers, saying it was unprecedented. Um, Obama, former President Obama was in Arizona also saying that, uh, you know, democracy is um, may not survive in Arizona if election deniers are elected. Are we really in uncharted waters? And what does this moment make you think about the future for the United States? Yeah, it's it's very, very fraught. And it makes my usual and perpetual optimism that I've had as an amateur historian for the nearly 50 years of practicing that I've done. It's made me really, you know, worry about it. And it isn't just Biden and Obama. It's Liz Cheney, you know, who is as rock rib as conservative as anything. The movement that is afoot, the thing that is threatening the United States is not conservative. It's it's dangerously radical ideas uh, that are right out of authoritarian playbooks. This is this is how you do it. I mean, you need only study uh, the rise of Hitler and and what took place there to see those echoes and those rhymes of what's going on now. And it becomes imperative for all good Americans to come to the aid of their country. I mean, it, it and that's why, you, you know, as Liz Cheney is shaking her head and saying, this is the first time in my life I've ever campaigned for a Democrat. You know, it's because there are enough people in the Republican Party, an overwhelming number of people in the Republican Party that do not believe in the freest and fairest election we've ever had, that are willing to put in those election deniers into important positions in uh, the oversight of elections that could then arbitrarily just change the elections if who they wanted in didn't come in. This is completely un-American. It is authoritarian, and that they believe that the opposing party isn't just somebody with whom they have differences of ideological, but they are in fact evil. They are the killer and the kidnappers and, and the pederasts of, of children, and that this is what we've come down to. That's a very, very worrisome moment. So if anybody's on the fence and just thinking it's about the economy, stupid, it's not. It's about the democracy, small d democracy stupid. That's what we need to save. That's what's really important. The economic things, I could I could take, waste five minutes of your time and give you a thumbnail of, of what the origins of them are, but they don't have to do with terrible policies on the part of one party or the other. It just has to, it's just happening. The more critical thing is, do you wish to wake up with your democracy still intact? Ken Burns, what a powerful question to end up on. Do you wish to wake up with your democracy still intact? Thank you so much for joining me today here on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.